Dan was thanking me earlier for allowing him to read a passage where the ten sons of Haman are, are named. Um, I, I recommend that you, you learn them. Uh, you never know when they might come up at a table quiz or some, some like event. This morning we're going to spend just a few moments um, looking at the last part of the book of Esther. Over these last three Sundays, as this story has unfolded, we've learned about a time when God's people were in great danger. Uh, there came a point uh, when it seemed inevitable that views of the Persian Empire were all going to be exterminated. Haman the Agagite, the enemy of God's people and of God's ways, uh, had passed a law. He had fixed a date for their extermination. And it seemed like only a matter of time before God's people on the face of the earth would be wiped out. And last week, we discovered that despite God not being mentioned in this story, despite the fact that none of his people ever explicitly take his name on their lips, God's still in it somehow. His providence is at work even in these dire circumstances. We discovered how God was directing the politics of the whole empire. The decisions of the powerful were seemed to be just in his hands. And we discovered that even while God's people were in exile, far from the land he had promised them, having disobeyed uh, the commandments he had given them, even then when they were in exile and facing extermination, God was still faithful to them, to his covenant people. In this passage, uh, which Dan has read for us just now, we discover how God finally turns the tables and that's what he did. The narrator tells us so in verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The, the first half of the chapter tells us how all this worked out. On the 13th of Adar... The Jews exercised the right of assembly that had been won for them. If you remember, we learned about that last week when Esther and Mordecai went to the king and asked for a second edict to be published. The Jews exercised the right of assembly. They defended themselves against everyone who had come against them. And this day, which had been marked in the calendar as the day when the Jews would be wiped from the face of the earth, when Jews from Sudan right up through Israel and as far east as Pakistan would be exterminated. Instead, there was a dramatic reversal. This became the day of the victory of God's people over their enemies. When you read God's word, you discover that this is absolutely typical of how God works. God loves to turn the tables. Time and time again in the Bible, we see situations where God takes the worst kinds of evil and works them for the best. Think of Joseph. If I, if I can't get you to think of Joseph this morning after, after last night and the, the final of any dream will do, I'll never be able to get you to think of Joseph. Think of Joseph for a second great-grandson of Abraham, 
right at the heart of what it is to be the people of God. And yet what happens to him? His brothers sell him into slavery. For 17 years, he, he rots away in, in, in prison in Egypt. But even then, God seems to be in it. And there's a, a, a massive reversal here too because God takes him from the prison and makes him second in command to only Pharaoh. God takes him from a place of no, uh, no prospects and no power to a place where he's in a position when the famine comes, he's in a position to save the lives of the very people who sold him into slavery. Joseph sums up his entire story in a word to his brothers, and we can read it in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph recognized this great reversal, how God stepped into the, the mess and the defeat of his life and, and won a wonderful victory and saved his people. Of course, the, the greatest reversal of all comes in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible turning of the tables. God uses evil and suffering to put an end to evil and suffering. Every time a disciple betrayed Jesus, every time a, a Jewish religious leader or a Roman soldier did violence against him, God was in it. In his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, Peter tells the Jerusalem crowd, Jesus of Nazareth was handed over to you. How? By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death and nailed him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. Friends, this morning, we gather to celebrate this, this great reversal, this pivotal moment in history. Jesus' death on the cross shows us that there's no sin and no evil in the world that cannot be taken by God and, and turned for good. The very suffering that we inflicted on Jesus Christ is used by God as a means for our salvation. We're going to sing our communion hymn in just a moment. And we'll remember their words of, of transformation. The songwriter talks of the wounds that heal. The death that brings us life. Our God takes the worst of things and works them for the best. What a, what a wonderful God we worship. The book of Esther ends in a passage that we won't read this morning by telling us in some detail of how God's people, the Jews, responded to his salvation. They threw a party. And why wouldn't they? They'd been on the verge of extinction, of being wiped out, and God stepped in and saved them. Mordecai declared an annual holiday. He sent letters throughout this huge empire 
uh, and he encouraged the Jews to celebrate Purim for the years to come. In verse 28 of chapter 9, we get some idea of the people's commitment to this celebration. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor the memory of them die out among their descendants. History shows that the Jews have been faithful to the commitment that they made in these times to celebrate Purim. World War II accounts tell us of Jewish inmates in Nazi concentration camps of Auschwitz, Dachau, Treblinka, Bergen-Belsen. They wrote out the book of Esther by heart and they, they read it in secret on the day of Purim. As they gathered in the face of another empire set on destroying them, on wiping them out, this feast was vital to them. It was more than just a reminder to them that God had saved them in the past. It was an encouragement that he was with them in the present and that somehow he would keep his people into the future. Friends, we have a greater salvation by far to celebrate here today. When we gather around the Lord's table in a moment, we're going to do so in memory of him, our Lord Jesus Christ. But I think we've got to move beyond just a, a memory, a remembering of this. We've got to celebrate. Here we celebrate the moment when God decisively turned the tables the moment when our death, and let's not forget that every one of us destined to death until Jesus Christ won new life for us on the cross. This is the moment where our sorrow turns to joy. Because Jesus lives, death is crushed to death. Life is ours to live. Friends, like the Jews celebrating Purim, but even more so and much more so, we must never, never stop celebrating what God has done for us in Jesus' death on the cross. Let's move to that celebration just now. Before we come to share in the bread and wine this feast laid before us, we're going to sing our communion hymn. It's one that we have been learning in recent weeks, so it should be familiar to us all by now. Behold the Lamb. Normally, we, in the past, we would have sat during our communion hymn and the elders would have gathered in your tokens, but today there's no need for that. So we'll stand as we sing this wonderful hymn, Behold the Lamb. 